So we are, um, well, first of all, welcome. And if you're new, welcome doubly. We are um, starting a, what we call a fall practice period in a few days. Actually, at the beginning, close to the first day of fall. I think it's the 22nd this year, but we're starting on the 21st. And um, what it is is a, a time, usually it's traditionally, it's usually 90 days, which goes back to the time of the Buddha. And um, we use that time to make a conscious choice to up the ante on our practice a little bit. We're following in the, as lay practitioners, we're following in the footsteps of the monks who went into the monastic community for those 90 days. Now that wasn't always the case that um, they went into a monastery. Sometimes they just got together somewhere. Um, certainly in the Buddhist time there wasn't a formal monastery. There were um, parks that were funded by people who allowed the monks to be there together for a while. And so we have something similar. We have a space that you all and others uh, fund so that we can be together in practice. Not that dissimilar from then. In fact, the Buddha was very clear that um, it was just as important to him. The four legs of, of the um, practice were monastic men, monastic women, laymen, and laywomen. So we carry that on. So this is not some rarefied thing that you have to be practicing Zen for 50 years before you can join. You can, um, anybody can take part in this and think about it. Even if you've just walked in the door, maybe the thing you're going to do is just sit here once a week or sit at home or just shift it and bring your attention a little bit more to what we call the practice, which I'm going to talk about because we're going to start a practice period, it would be a good idea to know what practice is. And we all probably have varying um, gates into that. I wouldn't even say definitions because I think to define it is a little problematic, but it's a very wide area. But, um, but we all enter it in different ways. So. I like to open talks up to everybody, so I would, I would really encourage anybody to, if you want to say something at any point, we don't have to ask, wait for some formal question and response time, just say something. Um, and the first thing, the first audience participation number, is I would like to hear what people think practice is. When we say what's practice, or Zen practice, or what, it, what is it? Don't be shy, it's a big field. It's hard to get it wrong, but. Paying attention and trying to make things good. Mm-hmm, what do you mean by good? Mm-hmm. Uh, and taking care of 
Thank you. Anyone else? I saw a hand somewhere. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not asking people. I haven't asked people to say their names. Would you just say your name for everyone? My name is John. Okay. If everyone else just say their name before they start. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Yeah. Please. <laughs> Before I go on, anyone else want to say anything? Burning? You don't give a failing. Did I see a hand over here? Is that delusional? Okay. So the, um, this is good, it's big. Um, The Buddha was kind, he, he talked about practice in three, and, and everybody touched on this. He talked about practice in three areas. He talked about practice in terms of engaging the Dharma, or prajna, or wisdom. And this was um, both studying the Dharma in a formal sense, or studying the teachings of the Buddha, but also... Um, what we might call, well, what's an experiential relationship to them? So what is it to clarify for ourselves the teachings of impermanence or dependent co-arising or any of these teachings that we understand in Buddhism? Compassion, loving kindness, there's hundreds. They all point to the same thing, but um, this area of wisdom, so this is an element of practice. Actually coming to understand what is the nature of the mind, and what is the nature of reality, and what is the nature of loving each other, and what are behaviors that lead to myself and others being miserable, and what are behaviors that lead to myself and others being happy, and in concert with each other. And that leads us into the second area that he talked about practice. The first area he traditionally defined as like right view and right intention. Having the right view and then having an intention behind that view that supports 
us waking up and being happy. And then the second area is around this moral discipline piece, what was called sila. So there's a moral, wisdom isn't just this thing that happens without paying attention to behavior. So speech, action, and livelihood. Or in Zen we often say body, speech, and mind. Um, this commitment to watching what our behavior is, what's happening when we speak. And again, this goes back to intention and view, right? So what's the intention when I speak? And then what's the effect of it? What's the intention when I act? And then what's the effect of it? And what's that saying about my view? Is my view rooted in separation and fear? Or is my root view rooted in connection and compassion and love? So our, that discipline or that practice, that moral practice, is not just about being good. It's really not about being good at all. Buddhism, it's about actually using moral discipline to understand what our views and intentions are more clearly, and also to cultivate compassion and kindness and care in the world to take care of our environment and the people around us. So this is an aspect of practice. And then, how do you support all of this? And then this is the other area of practice that the Buddha talked about, which is concentration and meditation, the, um, the taking care of the mind part of it, which is traditionally both effort, right effort, and right concentration. So if we're going to pay attention to our moral behavior, if we're going to try to cultivate behavior in a particular way, and that's going to illuminate our view and our effort. Okay. From where are we going to do that? A mind that's jumping all over the place, that can't stand still? Or a mind that's settled and aware and clear and can see what's actually arising in the mind, can see our intentions and see what's going on? So all of these three have to be operating together. You know, the Buddha did, some, I think, saw something that was very interesting, which was the mind, they, these all affect each other. So the mind of meditation and concentration can't settle without um, a sense of, how do I say, moral settledness. In other, way, in other words, if I lie, my mind goes a little crazy because it starts trying to figure out how to protect the lie. Oh, now I told the lie. Now I've got to tell a lie to make sure that nobody finds out about the lie and then the lies spin out, and then the mind's shaking all over the place. And so the mind really can't settle without a certain kind of uprightness, and a certain kind of clarity. So these three things all affect each other all the time. What's that? Wisdom. Like actually studying the dharmas, studying right view. And usually we talk about this in terms of, am I acting from separation or not? You know, we say that, you know, am I coming from a sense of separate self? And this, this investment in separate self would be what's considered wrong view, traditionally. At least the way we talk about it in Zen. Sometimes it's talked about wrong view is considered not believing in the Four Noble Truths. Not believing that there is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's a way out of suffering, and the way out of suffering is the Eightfold Path. For us, the Eightfold Path has been, has been translated into the Paramitas, which is 
and, and the precepts, which are, uh, in the case of the Paramitas, it's generosity. Practicing with generosity, with um, moral discipline, with patience, with effort, and uh, effort energy, again with uh, meditation, and then with wisdom. So, but I want to talk about, any thoughts or questions on all that? It's a lot of info. Just give me the basics. Um, so we t this is what we mean by studying the self. Like this is the way, there, there's, a, there's a, a line that you'll hear many times or have already heard many times. It's from Eihei Dogen, who's the founder of Soto Zen in Japan. And he talks about to study the self is to forget the self. This is the studying the self part. Okay. A lot of times what we want to do, and this is, this is an impulse for everybody at certain times in practice, which is we just want the painful, aggravating parts of the self to stop. We want to jump over them and get to feeling okay without really studying them. And it just doesn't work. We have to actually study. We have to see what we're doing. We have to understand what our behaviors are. We have to see them clearly. Because if we don't do that, then we, they're, they're active somewhere where we're not looking. And so we have to get really clear on um, what these are. And in the studying, they become less, um, well, we see their natures. Sometimes the nature, the three natures that are often talked about, which we see in anything that we look at long enough, that's rooted in separation, is that it's causing us trouble, it's suffering, it's dukkha. It doesn't really stick around all the time, it comes and goes. So it's impermanent, and if it's impermanent and unreliable, then we kind of stop buying into it after a while. And then also there's no there there. You can't find a thing at the center that makes it solid and totally reliable. And once we see our behaviors in those three lights again and again and again, there's just something about the mind that starts to withdraw and say, yeah, that's not what I'm going to rely on anymore. But that process happens by really looking at those things. And the mind will take care of itself. If our intention is to take care of the mind by really looking at what the mind is doing, the mind will start to pull away if we look really clearly. So, I want to um, actually talk about a case in the Book of Serenity, which, if you don't know the Book of Serenity, the Book of Serenity is this collection of a hundred cases or public cases, which are discussions between usually Zen teachers and probably mostly their senior students. And um, they're teaching stories. They're our mythology. And so, um, and I'm not using that word to say that they don't, they didn't happen. I'm just saying they are the, um, they're the stories of the ancestors of this tradition that this tradition is built on. But there's one that I thought was good going into a practice period. This particular story actually happened as they were exiting a practice period. They were about to leave a summer practice period and they had this exchange. And then there's a, the way these are structured is there's the exchange and then there's a bunch of commentary and then there's a poem that is considered a capping verse. And the poem I'm going to read later is actually my favorite one in the Book of Serenity. I just love it. And... Um, 
But I'll read the case first. So, Dongshan said, this is case 89 for those who, who like to know those things. It's Dongshan's no grass. So Dongshan said to the assembly, it's the beginning of the autumn, the end of the summer. And you, brethren, brothers and sisters, we'll say in this case, or siblings, and you siblings will go, some to the east and some to the west. You must go where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. But where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles, how can you possibly go there? Shishuang replied, going out the gate, immediately there is grass. And another student, Dayang, said, I'd say even not going out the gate, still the grass is boundless. Anybody want to take a guess what the grass is? Hmm? Where there's growth? Anyone else? Certainly where there's growth. Delusions. Delusions? Hmm? I think that's an interpretation for sure. One of the ways it's interpreted is the grass is like the myriad things. We often talk about the myriad things. It's everything that arises in the mind. So it's what's alive. It's what grows. It's what's in our world. But it's also pointing out the way we relate to it, which is sometimes with clarity and sometimes with delusion. But if we, if we become, um, if we're in pain or if we're suffering, it's because we're grabbing on to these grasses. We're grabbing on to these things that are rising in the mind. I really want this. I don't want this. This in the world, I, I can't stand that this is happening. I want it to go away. So these are the things that are making everything extremely difficult for us. So he says, like, it, some of you will go east, some of you will go west. Go where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. So go where there is nothing, nothing in the mind. Now, it's clever because, you know, it's pointing to what many of us want to do. You know, the teacher's being kind of skillful because he's asking the students to, to do what they really deeply want to do, which is just not have a life, not erase the life that causes them pain and suffering. Go where there are no grasses. But then he follows up and says, but if I tell you to do that, how can you actually go anywhere where there isn't life? where there isn't the arising of dukkha, where there isn't suffering, where there isn't pain in the world, where are you going to go? And the one student says, yeah, as soon as I walk outside of the gate, meaning in this case the monastery, but we could easily say the Zen center, or Zazen, or whatever little cozy spot we like. You know, as soon as I walk outside the gate, there's grass everywhere. I have to deal with all of it. But the second student comes back and says, there's grass inside the gate, too. You're not going to not deal with it here either. So this is just the, the, the teaching story is just pointing to how our life is our life. You know, when we come to um, that little itch of wanting to come to practice to get away from life or to think that to be content and happy 
is to go somewhere else. And we have that, we all have this. It shows up in a hundred different ways. That we're going to go somewhere else and this isn't going to be, this life is, we're going to get a better one. We're going to trade it in and we're going to get a better one. We settle in to this life. We accept the grasses. But the minute, you know, the, the, well, I'm going to go to the poem. Any thoughts on this? Actually? Any resistances? Any, like, I'm, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not here to accept my life. <laughs> And see, now that's interesting. Why isn't it something good? Why shouldn't we imply something good? Already the mind has made a decision about the nature of one's life, that it's weeds. Or that certain aspects of the things that cause us to suffer are weeds. Right, but they're challenging. It's a, tr it's a trick. It's a trick. Because he's saying, listen, the, there's two parts to this instruction. One is, you must go where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. Okay, so that's the first thing. But the second thing he says, but where is there not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles? How can you go there? So, if, you, if I tell you, go where there is where there are no problems or issues or a life that's complicated or the phenomena arising in the mind, go where all of that doesn't exist. How will you find your way there? What life would that be? There would be no life. So. <laughs> but also that um, he's pointing out our, se our separation, but go where there aren't the 10,000 things. Well, yeah, we go there all the time. It's emptiness. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's the absolute. We're, we're there. Uh, but then where are the notch, the, the grass, of the beautiful, lovely grass in the natural point of view? <laughs> but it's also that beautiful paradox of, uh, yeah, you can go there. Uh, right, you're right here right now. Doesn't matter which side of the day. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, um, don't, don't, don't make something really out of it. Mm -hmm. It's life, like you said. It's life and death. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. I mean, he's pointing to the 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 
the mistake that people make, which is emptiness is the eradication of the grasses. Yeah. That there's nothing. Yeah. Right. No, it's a, the the. Thanks for the segue. Actually, <laughs> please. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's a different, I would say it's in a different sphere of, um, because there is a thing that we call idiot compassion in, in Buddhism. And what I mean by that is, we also have to pay attention to the nature of our circumstances. So there's also the relative cultivation side, which is, I'm looking at my behavior in the world and what takes care of me, and I have to pay attention to the things that support me moving toward happiness and wholeness and all of those things and the things that get in the way. I have to pay. And, empty, and people often get into this notion of, you know, it, those things don't matter if I'm awake enough. Or I either throw myself completely into life. Throwing ourselves completely into life doesn't mean we don't pay attention to what's good for us and what's not good for us. But it means throwing ourselves completely into life. In fact, one of the aspects of throwing ourselves completely into life is to pay attention to what's actually going to cultivate us in a particular way or another way. To not pay attention to that is to not be totally in life. It's to act like it doesn't matter. When of course it matters. It matters who we're with and who we hang out with and how we spend our time. These things of course matter. So, so I actually think you know, in the, those situations it's certainly true that some people, it's better for us not to be around. But to fully return, to love those people fully, you know, and there's the, there's the, there's the, um, the rub in a way, is the people who are not good for me or who cause me suffering, can I recognize that and can I fully love them and can I not, this is where the idiot compassion comes in, not confuse the love of them with, I need to be around them all the time. Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. There's no like pat answer to that. You're going to have to, I mean, everybody has to explore that for themselves, but sometimes we have to separate ourselves to even be able to tell why we're separating ourselves. Sometimes we may have to leave a situation because we can't tell in the mix whether this is something that I'm just egoically don't want to deal with because it's really hard or um, this is not good for me. Or usually, more often than not, a mix. And um, trying to tease all that out sometimes requires leaving for a bit. Which is what monasteries do for people. <laughs> people just leave for a bit and try to figure out what's going on. So, yeah, I don't know any easy way to just say, this is when it's this way and this is when, at least not in my life. Those have been long. Sometimes it's taken years for me to understand the things that were actually my, just my egoic stuff versus, no, that was kind of a terrible situation I didn't need to be in. Yeah. So. Sorry, that's not very helpful. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> it's, it's completely And sometimes I think, oh, it'd be nice to have a backyard. Yeah. And then I'll go there, and then I think, oh, but I have to take care of it. Mm. You know, uh, maybe better just to be like, you know, like a lofty. We have to take care of the grasses, yeah. yeah. So Tian Tong writes this capping verse, capping poem. Grass boundless, inside the gate, outside the gate, you see by yourself. To set foot in the forest of thorns is easy to turn the body outside the luminous screen is hard. Look, look how many kinds. For the while going along with the old tree, with the same emaciation in the cold, about to follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning. So I explain. <laughs> I know some of these Chinese poems make no sense. Um, they actually kind of do in the end. So, um, grass boundless, we know what that is, okay? We now know what that means. It's the endless array of phenomena that make up one's life. You know, in the, in the to study the Buddha way is to study the self, going back to the Dogen, to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. So once we let go of this small self, thoroughly and completely, what our true nature is, is the arising and fall away, falling away of all the grasses, of all the myriad things. That's what we are. 
when we're experiencing life right now at this moment, we have this huge mind that has all these people in it and this room and sound and cool air and the whole earth supporting us. All this is going on right now. But we think we're just this little thing. And everybody else is somehow not us, even though our direct experience is that all of this is arising as this mind. But we chop it all up. So, to forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. So the grass is boundless. Inside the gate, outside the gate, you see by yourself. It doesn't matter if you're in the monastery or outside of the monastery. You're the one responsible for your mind, and you're the only one who's going to be able to do the practice. That's always going to be true. To set foot in the forest of thorns is easy. So traditionally, the monastic community was often referred to as a forest of trees, because everybody's sitting upright together. But Tiantong, in this case, is the one who wrote this, switches it to Forest of Thorns, which nobody knows exactly why he did that, but I like to believe because he was recognizing that even monks have a bunch of karmic baggage that they're working out, and it's really hard to be with them. You know? <laughs> so so I, you know, I, I think it's great that it switched to Forest of Thorns. So to set foot in the Forest of Thorns is easy. We're the Forest of Thorns. The Sangha right here. And it is like a Forest of Thorns. You know, you spend years, the sangha is beautiful. In terms of when we're talking about practice and, and, and seeing ourselves, um, it's not like you get into sangha and everything's just sweet. People get on your nerves. You know, somebody says something that's awful. People have all kinds of internalized baggage they're not aware of, and they're shooting that out all over everybody. And, um, but you have a different intention here than might be the case at work or wherever else, which is you're going to, each of us are agreeing to look this way when we feel injury. Now, it's not to say that the person who said something not very nice or acted in a particular way, whatever, doesn't have some culpability there. They certainly do. But our freedom doesn't lie with analyzing them. We're not going to be free by sitting around going, well, they did this, and they had this intention, and they haven't looked this out yet, and they got tons of patriarchal crap going on, and, you know, all of that. Which they may. All that may be true. But, um, but that's always going to be true. That's always going to be true with anybody. So the freedom lies with actually looking at the injured one and understanding what's going on there. So this is the forest thorns that are jabbing us. To turn the body outside the luminous screen is hard. So the luminous screen is the empty mind, is the consciousness that is unruffled by any of this, and is always present, always paying attention, isn't having any, it's not having any problems. It's just aware. So the luminous screen is great. You know, we sit five days and suddenly everything settles and the mind is bright and it's, you know, all of that. And you spend a few years in the monastery and that happens or you just spend a few years in practice at a Zen center or whatever. And we start connecting to that feeling. And um, we're able to rest there. And that's fantastic. To turn the body outside the luminous screen is hard. 
even once we have that, we can either hang out there or we can turn the body outside into the world and do what actually our practice points us to in the Mahayana and in Zen, which is toward Bodhisattva life. Toward the life where we become very, very clear that our liberation as a person, our freedom, our happiness is completely entangled with the greater forest of thorns, with everybody else. That there's no way for us to be fully free without a deep intention and compassion. Because the Buddha, the Buddha said very clearly, switch, in a way you can look at it as a switch of your frame of um, how you understand being in the world. Switch from self and other to suffering and not suffering, no matter where it's happening, no matter in what body, no matter in what person. That's the division, not self and other. The division is, is there suffering arising or is there not suffering arising? And am I going to be there for the alleviation of the suffering regardless? And I may not know how to do it yet, but I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to see if I can learn how to do it. So, to set the body outside the luminous screen is hard. Look. Look. How many kinds? How many things to look at? It's endless. Everything that we're going to have to pay attention to. This is good news. It sounds horrible, but it's actually great. And it becomes... Um, It becomes the joy of life. It becomes the joy of life to really understand how we all work together. You know, to slowly begin to understand how we all work together. How we all rise together. How we all live together. You know, and to experience this from a place of love instead of a place of what we're being, you know, competition and everything else. Any other set of ways that we're told to be together. Domination. It's a mess. How many kinds? For the while, going along with the old tree, with the same emaciation in the cold. So here, Tiantong's talking about how practice can go dead. We can really get into this idea of sitting, and, you know, I've been doing this for 10, 15 years, or we can even come in this way. You know, when we want to get away with the 10,000 grasses, we want to go somewhere where there's not. This is a kind of dead practice. Yeah. For the while, going along with the old dead tree, with the same emaciation in the cold, where we just get hung up on the formality of practice. A kind of bloodless, institutional Zen practice would be an example. You know. And there's a way of doing things, and it looks this way, and it looks that way. And, and if I'm still, and I, you know, I get this just perfect state of mind, and now everything feels great, and nothing can touch me. This is the old dead tree. And you can have 20 people sitting around the old dead tree. Emaciation in the cold. We just start to die away. We're not really useful to life. There's not really much that we're good for, except that we can say we can hang out in a state of mind and feel really good a lot. 
So he's pointing to this. And you know, this isn't just something that happens like, oh, 15 years and now they practice this and now I've got this state of mind and I'm an old dead tree. We can come in this way. You know, the Buddha talked about you can either, to be indulgent is not the way and to be ascetic or self-attacking is not the way. We find a middle way between the two. Okay, and the middle way doesn't mean we're a little ascetic and a little indulgent. It means we just <laughs> release from that, that, that um, polar way of thinking about life. And we pay attention to what's arising. And that kind of self-destructive asceticism, that we're doing that every single time we sit on a cushion and say, I need to destroy that part of who I am. That needs to go. That's when we're doing it. And we're doing the indulgence side most of the rest of the time. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's really great. You know, they deserve to be talked to that way, whatever. Yeah. Yes. Mm hmm. You're right. <laughs> You're right, but people make people make the mis yeah people make the mistake of thinking you can. You know, so of thinking that you can do that of separating the luminous mind from the grasses, of separating an experience of boundlessness from life itself, and that, like anything else, can be turned into something that we use to hang out in. And by doing so, we become old dead tree. Yeah. And the next line addresses exactly that. Okay. So he says, you know, to turn the body outside the luminous screen is hard. Um, and then look, look how many kinds. And then he talks about the old dead tree and the emaciation of the cold. But then the final line, and this is what makes me love this poem, about to follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning. So, spring wind, how light and lovely. I'm going to follow the spring wind. The scars of the burning are the karma of everyone's life together. It's the world. The burning is very specific. Okay, the burning refers to many things, but one thing it refers to is the Buddha's fire sermon which he talks about the senses being on fire and the whole body being on fire and the way and fire with greed and hatred and delusion. It's on fire with the confusion of our um, self-grasping mind. So here's this monk who's saying, all of this, I tried all this. I've been practicing for a long time or not so long or whatever. But now, I'm going to follow the spring wind. Not, I'm going to follow a powerful army, or I'm going to trudge through this and that. I'm going to follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning. And it's not just the burning, it's the scars of the burning. So it's recognizing that everybody has gone through fire. And everybody is living out these scars. And that what we're doing with this practice is committing ourselves to these scars, and these scars, and all of these scars. And bringing, um, 
What is given to us to that? So when we talk about practice, um, this is the kind of, we start small, let's say. You know, because committing ourselves to all the scars of the burning is probably a pretty big project. Although there are many people in this room who are doing exactly that. You know, there are many people here who are working in fields and, and have jobs and have vocations and have hobbies that are engaging, are engaging the scars of the burning. And... Um, And there are those of us who are attending to our own scars at this point. And we need to do both. And we need to have a sense when we can, when we need to be inside the gate, and we need to pay attention to this one, and we need to take care of this one for a while, and when we can go outside the gate and we can follow the spring wind, because the spring wind has come, and we can follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning of the world. But make no mistake that in this path, the inside the gate and working on the scars of the burning is not for any other reason than so we can flower into the one who can address the scars of the burning of the world. That's what this path is. Thoughts? That's a beautiful point. <laughs> I know, isn't it? <laughs> I know. It's hauntingly beautiful. <laughs> I'll read it again now that... Yeah, I'll read it again. Grass boundless. Inside the gate, outside the gate, you see by yourself. To set foot in the forest of thorns is easy. To turn the body outside the luminous screen is hard. Look, look, how many kinds. For the while, going along with the old dead tree, with the same emaciation in the cold, about to follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning. Actually, I think we're past time. We're either past. When am I supposed to end? I think service is scheduled for 11.50. We can talk about what we want to do. It's now 11.53. We want to take seven minutes in case anybody wants to say anything? Or sure. Anybody want to say anything? I think that's enough for me. Please. Could be, yeah. I mean, it is interesting that the poem plays with the two seasons that are not in the um, case. 
So in the case they talk about, it's the end of summer and it's the beginning of fall. But the poem, he talks about the emaciated cold and the old dead tree and then the rising of the spring wind. So certainly he's, I don't know if he's talking about, well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you're bringing up because if you were going to put that in here, then winter and the old dead tree and the cold and the belief that we can actually live a life without grasses, spiritually, without our life phenomena rising, would be the same. It would be a kind of death. It wouldn't be, we're not going to get beyond our life. Yeah, back to the dead tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when I was thinking back to your question um, about the turning, turning the body out of the luminous mind, I think one of the things that's being pointed to there is once, once, the, once somebody has developed the capacity to be in that mind, I think when he says turning the body out, he means can you turn the body out back into the world and not hang out there? You know, because that is hard. That is hard for many spiritual practitioners. At a certain point, the more difficult thing for them is to really walk back into their life. What else? Mm-hmm. 
No, it's my favorite definition right now of a bodhisattva. Is a spring wind meeting the scars of the burning. It's beautiful. It says something about the personality of the person. Yoko. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. This always comes back to just accepting our life. You know, I've had a few conversations with people where it's, it was always boiling down to um, accepting the life that we have. Which, which, I, I, which I think is um, maybe the hardest thing <laughs> in practice, if there's a hardest thing. I think it's a long road to really fully and deeply accepting the life that we are in all of its particularities. That's interesting. Um, that's a good question in the social justice realm, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Whether we just address the scars or we also address the burning. Um, the same. Yeah. Yeah, I would say there I would say that our job is to address the both. Because if I were gonna ask that if I were gonna answer that formally from like a from the Buddha, he he was very clear that we need to address the causes and conditions of suffering. So certainly not just the burning, but the sticks and the gasoline and all of it. Yeah. Yeah. What caused the burning? But also to recognize sometimes we can get so focused on the burning that we forget about the scars. Yeah. Everybody gets really riled up about the burning and the cause of the burning, and they totally walk right over all the scars. One other. This, Leah. About controlling the emaciated tree? Sure. Or creation of change versus controlling change? Um, well, controlled change would not work. That's for sure. Um, I don't even know if we can create change. Um, 
I'm not saying we can't. I just, that's a question. What it means to create change. Because in my experience in my own life, and looking at my own transformation, it's the setting of my intention in a very deep way that results in the shift. If I set out to create change in myself, it doesn't really ever work. And I certainly can't control its direction. I don't even know what the change is going to look like. I mean, that's the thing. If you were asked me to five years ago, would I have any idea about who I am now? I would not have any idea about who I am now. It doesn't look anything like what I was imagining five, ten years ago. So I wouldn't even know what change to create. And I think to get into the idea, and this is really important in the social, at the societal level, is we don't know what um, collective liberation looks like. We don't know. We don't know what our own liberation looks like. So, to, um, to create change is to have an idea of change. And to have an idea of change is to control change. And controlled change is doing the same thing again and again. It's not change at all. Because it's rooted in an idea. Change means letting go of all of the ideas of change. And then change can happen. And it'll be completely mysterious and surprising. All right. May our intentions equally... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.